Turn with me tonight to the 10th chapter of the book of Revelation. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 10 is where we'll pick up in our study. And um, one of the major questions that people have debated throughout the centuries has to do with the problem of evil. Maybe you've witnessed to someone or had a conversation with someone who has rejected Christianity on the basis of why would a loving God allow evil to persist? If there is a God in heaven, then surely he would do something about all of the evil and the injustice in the world and starving children around the world and issues of rape and abuse and those kinds of things that we hear about so frequently. If there's a God in heaven, why does he allow evil to continue? That's the question. Why doesn't he seem to intervene? Why doesn't he stop all of the carnage of man's world? And if he truly loves his people like he says he does, why does he permit his own children to suffer the way that so many of them suffer? One person who grappled with this very issue of evil and the presence of God and whether or not God was good was a Jewish man by the name of Eli Weissel which maybe some of you are familiar with the book, Night. Um, but along with his entire family, when he was very, very young, the experience, the horror of the Auschwitz concentration camp during the days of the Holocaust. While there in Auschwitz and even another camp that he was transferred to, but he experienced the death of both of his parents, the death of his sister, one of his biographers said of Ellie Weissel in the foreword to that book, Night, Nietzsche's cry that God is dead was expressed in almost physical reality. It was Nietzsche who made that statement, God is dead. The God of love, the God of gentleness, the God of comfort has vanished forevermore. And how many pious Jews have experienced this death? On that day, horrible even among those days of horror, when a child watched the hanging of another child who he tells us had the face of a sad angel, he heard someone behind him groan, where is God? Where is he? And that was the question that Ellie Weissel wrestled with. Where was God in the concentration camps? Where is God in the bitter seasons of life? Where is God when there's so much pain and agony and suffering in the world? And what is he doing about it? Well, all of those questions find their answers in this last book of the Bible. And it's a book which explains in vivid detail how the evil of man's fallen world, ultimately it's judged and will be judged when the king of the universe comes to establish his reign upon the earth. So Revelation 10 is one of those passages that really is intended to be an encouragement for the people of God. Now, <laughs> thank the Lord we get some encouragement in chapter 10 because the previous chapter when we talk about them demon locusts coming from the bottomless pit, we needed some encouragement. Can, can I get a witness? But this, pa this passage is, is another interlude in the overall book. And we've seen this a couple of times, but chapter 10 introduces another interlude that comes between the sixth 
and seventh trumpet judgments. Just as that first interlude came between the sixth and the seventh seal. If you know the overall message of the book, it, it begins when the Lamb of God, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, he takes the title deed to the earth, which is the scroll described in the fifth chapter. It's sealed with seven seals. He begins to open those seals. The opening of the seventh seal uh, gives way to the seven trumpet judgments. And each of those trumpet judgments, judgment increases as far as intensity and frequency. And we've made it all the way to the sixth trumpet judgment. And between the sixth trumpet judgment and the seventh trumpet judgment, we have this interlude, this second interlude from chapter 10, which goes all the way through verse 14 of chapter 11. And so it's an important section because it reveals the fact that the final judgment of God is sure and will accomplish God's ultimate purpose on earth. And what is that ultimate purpose? It's the reign or the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what God has in mind for the world. What is the climax of human history? What is it that God is bringing history to? History is his story. And he's bringing his story to a fitting conclusion. And it's going to be a wonderful, happy ending, men and women, for the people of God. When Jesus Christ comes to reign. And so the focal point of the epic story of Revelation, as well as the overall story of the Bible as a whole, is this story of the kingdom of God, the coming kingdom of God, the lordship and the reign of God's king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Dr. Chuck Swindoll, whom I know many of you listen to uh, in his insights on Revelation, uh, he says this. He says that epic stories affect us on an emotional level. You ever read something or watched something that was an epic and it affected you at an emotional level? Uh, I'm going to show you how big of a nerd that I am. But the Lord of the Rings trilogy, I love, and I've told you this before, but I love it. When those made it to the big screen, I don't know, 20 years ago, I was one of those geeks that stayed up till midnight for its midnight release. The third and final installment, The Return of the King, I remember going to watch it midnight, and it was like a three-hour-long movie. Anita accompanied me, reluctantly, Anita accompanied me <laughs> to the theater to watch that. And she didn't make it all the way through. I think she fell asleep after the opening credits. But, <laughs> but if you've watched those movies, you've read those books, you know that it's really an epic story. And, and the whole storyline, it's the battle between good and evil. You know, Tolkien was a Christian. A friend of C.S. Lewis. Tolkien was a Christian. And there are a lot of themes there that really we can relate to uh, as, as believers, the ultimate triumph of good over evil. And, and in that story, there are times in which you think that the evil is going to outnumber and overpower the good. And there are times when you think that there's no chance for the heroes of the story, the good guys. But truth prevails, right wins the day at great sacrifice, and there's something about that story that, I mean, it really gets us in the feels. 
It affects us at a deeply emotional level. And so these stories, we're swept up by the action. We become victims of the conflict. We share conquest with the hero. Some of the greatest novels, some of the greatest movies of our day illustrate powerful redemptive truths. Now, here's something that Dr. Swindoll says that I think is so very good. He says that there are really three truths that surface in every good story, and this includes God's true story of creation and redemption, the story of the Bible. And here are those three truths. You may want to jot these down there in the margin of your notes. The first truth, things are not what they seem. And the second truth, this is a world at war. And the third truth, we have a crucial role to play. Now think about that. Often that's, that's the theme, the storyline of any epic movie, any epic narrative. Things are not what they seem. This is a world at war, and the good guys have a crucial role to play. Now, you apply those characteristics to the book of Revelation, and you will see that Revelation, in many ways, is an epic. Things most certainly are not what they seem. We have an enemy who's blinded humanity to the reality of spiritual things. The ancient worldview of the Bible understands that reality exists in two worlds. You've got the seen and the unseen, the physical and the spiritual, the visible and the invisible, the physical and the metaphysical, and all such as that. The Apostle John, he understood that what is seen, ultimately it's influenced by what is unseen so that things are not what they seem. <laughs> when you get discouraged with the presence of evil in the world and you wonder what God is doing, Often it's because we're making some type of judgment based upon what we see with our own two eyes and what we're trying to think and rationalize with our brain. But things are not what they seem. God is in control. And then that second characteristic comes into view and that this is a world in war, at war. Mankind made in the image of God was brought into this war in the third chapter of Genesis, the fall of man, the temptation narrative there in the Garden of Eden, and how Adam's sin has plunged Adam's descendants into sin and brokenness. The reason that there is evil in the world is because of sin. And so since that time, the world of man has been one of great conflict. Cosmic conflict is raging in our world. And so these chapters that we're studying here in Revelation are vital because they help us see the spiritual dimension behind so much of the conflict in man's world. Why do nations go to war with nations? Why do empires grow and become beast-like in their characteristics? It's because of the enemy and sin. And then you've got this third issue is that we have a crucial role to play. And oftentimes, this is the most overlooked characteristic. But I think that when you stop to think about it, you, you perhaps are wondering, okay, well, what is my role? What is my purpose? Why am I here? What is it that God ultimately wants from my life? If things are not what they seem, 
and we're living in a world at war and I have a crucial role to play, then tell me what that role is. Well, I believe that we'll find some real help from this 10th chapter of Revelation as to the nature of what our role is as the people of God. So let's read beginning with verse 1, Revelation chapter 10. John writes and says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun, his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded, And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. And then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again saying, go take the scroll that's open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. And so I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll, and he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. I want to speak from this subject tonight, the angel and the bittersweet book. The angel and the bittersweet book. So this vision that John receives here involves this mighty angel who's holding in his hand a little scroll and it involves a particular assignment that the apostle John is given. Now, this is a change of pace from the previous two chapters, which included the six trumpet judgments and all of those terrible events associated with them. And if those previous two chapters are about judgment, this chapter is one of encouragement. Again, it's an interlude in the overall message. One person has said that the main idea of this passage is that despite opposition... God has given his people his authoritative and trustworthy word and has commissioned them to proclaim it to the nations. In spite of opposition, in spite of rebellion, and in spite of suffering, God's given his people his all-sufficient authoritative word. He expects us to do something with it. So you're asking the question, what's my role? Well, I'll tell you what it involves. It involves that you do something with the word of God. It demands that I do something with the gospel of Jesus Christ. My role in the midst of this world which is at war, blind and in rebellion against God, 
My role involves that I do something with what I know to be true, the truth of God as revealed in his word. So I want you to notice a couple of things here about this message, the angel and the bittersweet book. Notice that it involves an authoritative message or the authority of the message itself. And really that's what's being driven home here in the first four verses with the descriptive terminology that's used uh, in reference to this mighty angel. Uh, References to angels are recorded more than 60 times throughout the book of Revelation. This is a book of a lot of angelic activity, which should be a reminder. Again, there is an unseen realm, and there are good angels and there are evil angels, and this obviously is one of those good angels that is being described. You've got heavenly creatures, you've got hellish creatures that are given remarkable description in Revelation. The preceding trumpet judgments, John saw angels who sounded their respective instruments. The bottomless pit was opened up from which emerged what could only be described like locusts with frightening features. And here you have evil angels being described that John sees and is trying to describe and all of that But all of that aside, this angel under consideration here in chapter 10 is unlike any of the others. Now, a couple things about this. Notice that what's said about this mighty angel really illustrates the truth of divine majesty. So much of the language that's used to describe this angel is similar to the description back in chapter 1 that John gave of the glorified Lord Jesus. Now, this has led some scholars to identify the angel of chapter 10 with Jesus himself, even though I don't think that that's the case. And some have said, well, this perhaps, since it's an interlude passage, uh, this, the angel of the Lord, where you see so much of that phrase in the Old Testament, it's a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God. Uh, Maybe this is something like that. It's just a a vision that John has given of the angel of the Lord, which is another reference of Jesus. But I really don't think that that's the case. Specifically, I think there's some clues here in the text. Notice there in verse 1, John says, I saw another mighty angel. And language scholars have pointed out that that word uh, alos, the Greek word translated as another, is a word that specifically means another of the same kind. And if this were the Lord Jesus that were being described here, then the word heteros would be used, which is another of a different kind. Because let me tell you, Jesus is no angel. He's the Son of God. He is God incarnate. And when we think of angel, I know we think of created being, but you know that Jesus Christ is, he's the creator incarnate. So this perhaps have led others to speculate that maybe this is the archangel Michael himself. And I tend to hold that particular view uh, since the appearing of this angel involves the announcing of a message, a message of authority, and since this message has to do with the mystery of God, which had been announced beforehand through Israel's prophets, then more than likely, I believe that this is Michael the archangel himself. Now, again, you go back to our study of Daniel, and we talked about Michael as being the chief prince of God's own people, and that this is a message involving the, the hope 
the fruition of God's ultimate plan for his people, his ultimate plan for humanity itself, and that is the enthronement of God's own king. And so the seventh trumpet, when it sounded, it's all about the coming kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about the kingdom of Christ that's going to be inaugurated when the king of kings returns. So I think when you consider the way in which this angel is described, it's clear that his message is one of authority as it is from God himself. One thing we know for certain is that both the angel and the message that this angel declares originates with the throne of God. And so it is authoritative. Now, what's the description? Well, it's a fourfold description of majesty. Look at how the angel is said to be, first of all, wrapped in a cloud. John says, I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud. Uh, Cloud symbolizes glory, majesty. Often throughout Scripture, you see that this is the case. Uh, God led the people of Israel in their wilderness wanderings by a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. When the law was given at Mount Sinai, uh, clouds covered the top of the mountain. I think of the Shekinah glory cloud of God that came to fill the Holy of Holies within the tabernacle and later uh, Solomon's dedication of the temple. It also calls to mind Daniel's language in Daniel chapter 7 when he's describing the, the vision of the Son of Man that he received, which we know is Jesus, coming with the clouds of heaven as he's presented to the Ancient of Days. And so the the cloud there, I think this is just symbolic of God's glory. And oftentimes, clouds were associated with judgment. Notice the rainbow that John sees over this angel's head. You know, the the, uh, rainbow is symbolic of God's covenant faithfulness. Go all the way back to Noah after the flood. God put his rainbow in the sky as a testimony that never again would he destroy the earth by means of the global flood. But it was a visible, tangible reminder of God's covenant faithfulness. Which, By the way, it's interesting that the enemy would, uh, of all souls, Satan, would want to hijack that and that fallen blind humanity take that and it becomes something totally different in, in today's generation. I'm like Ken Ham. I think it's time to take the rainbow back. But then John says that uh, this angel's face was shining like the sun. This is the direct result of having been in the presence of God. As a result, there's this awesome reflection of God in all of his brilliance. He says that the angel's legs were like pillars of fire. This perhaps is reference to stability or holiness. Legs are often associated with strength. And so the point is that this This angel was so magnificent that he made the other wicked angels, the previous chapters, look plain in comparison. It's kind of like Gandalf when he's the white wizard that's radiating and how he kind of makes all of those orcs look really bad by comparison. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you've just missed out on the Lord of the Rings. I'm just telling you, you need to watch that movie. But notice John sees that this mighty angel has something in his hand, and it's a little scroll, which John says was open. 
And so large and so fierce is this mighty angel that he's standing with his right foot on the sea, his left foot on the land. And when you consider all of this imagery, it conveys this idea of authority and lordship. And the idea is this is God's world and he's reclaiming it for himself by means of redemption and judgment. By means of redemption and now through means of judgment, God is taking back that which belongs to him. So it's about divine majesty, but then notice something else. It has to do with divine mystery. What exactly happens when this angel cries out? Well, you'll notice that verse 3 says that his voice is like a lion roaring. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever been at the Ashborough Zoo early in the morning, maybe at feeding time? And that critter begins to bellow, and man, you can hear him all over the zoo. Imagine you're out on the plains of the Serengeti by yourself and you hear that. And you're looking for some hole that you can crawl in. Or some tree 25 miles away that you can run to and climb up in. It's a scary thing. It's, it's intended to be an intimidating thing. So the verse says that when this mighty angel called out, the seven thunders sounded. What did they say? Seven thunders well, this is a mystery to us because John is specifically told to seal up what is said. This is the only thing said to be sealed in the book of Revelation. Everything else is unsealed. The end of the book, John specifically told to leave it unsealed because the time is at hand, but this is the one thing that is, is sealed up. So we don't know what was said. God chose not to reveal it. What we have to do is appeal to the truth of Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. In other words, what God wants you and I to know, he's plainly revealed and told us what to do. And it would be foolish speculation on our part to try to pry into the secrets of God. And there's some application here, because oftentimes when things happen a certain way in our lives, we tend to take an off-ramp, or there's a bend in the road that we didn't see coming. Things happen, they turn out in ways we didn't foresee, we want answers. And we pray, and we ask our friends, and there are no answers. Why has this happened? Why has God allowed this to happen the way that it is? And folks, we've got to go back to that promise. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. We don't understand. I'm not sure that we'll understand everything even one day when we get to heaven. But one thing I will know for certain is this. God is good. Amen. And, and, and all of the happenings of my life, both the good and the bad, both the fortunate and the unfortunate, the things that I would welcome and the things that I would not, for whatever reason, God's hand of grace has allowed those in my life. And God doesn't owe me any explanation. J.I. Packer said we shouldn't try to pry into God's secrets. We're to be content to live with what he has told us. Reverence excludes speculation about things that God has not mentioned in his word. We must be content not to know what the scripture does not tell us. But I do believe that ultimately the idea here, John's being shown that God has sovereign control over what's happening. And that even the presence of evil 
Which coming back to that question that I asked when we got started, coming back to the presence of evil and the fact that evil, it seems like it's, it's, it's unrestrained. But the scripture says that even the wrath of man will praise the Lord our God. Which means that God, what man would mean for evil, God means for good. If the life of Joseph teaches us anything, it teaches us that truth. So this is an authoritative message then, this bittersweet book. Now, notice the affirmation of this message. We really see this in verses 5, 6, and 7. John says, the angel standing on the sea and on the land, notice he raises his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever. Now, does that call to mind any particular scene to you that we're familiar with in our justice, our system of justice, the courtroom scene? And so where you have someone who's placing their hand on the Bible and they're raising their hand and and taking their oath, this comes right from this picture here in Revelation chapter 10. That's where this practice comes from. So here you have this angel who's taking this oath, swearing by him who lives forever and ever. Swearing by the one who created heaven and what's in it, earth and all that's in it, the sea and all that's in it. And what is he he swearing? That there would be no more delay. That the hope of God's people in ages past, the message that had been announced by the prophets, the kingdom of God, God's own king, the son of David, who's going to be seated upon the throne and rule forever and ever, it's going to happen. And this is the promise, and this is what is is being declared here. So this is an issue then of confirming the word. The one who has spoken the world into its very existence, he's the same one who upholds the world by his word of power, and at the appropriate time, he will enact judgment. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And notice the fact that emphasis is placed here on God as the creator. And by this time in the sequence of events in Revelation, think about how much of the earth has been devastated by the previous trumpet judgments. But the fact that this messenger angel has one foot on the land and one foot on the sea, this is proof that even though things have gotten bad on the ground, God's still in charge. This is my father's world. Humanity would be so foolish to worship the stuff of earth instead of God who created it. And so now he's taking it over because it's his to begin with. Which, by the way, this is a nail in the coffin to evolutionary theory which says that the world is just a product of chance. The universe, listen to me, it is here by design, not by accident. (laughs) And that origin of the universe has been something that's been the object of dispute for many generations. How did we get here? What is our purpose? Evolution then provides the basis for all of these philosophies that have led to so much death and destruction. I think about um, um, secular ideologies, uh, Hitler's Nazi Germany, or the communism of Marx and Marxism and all of that underlying these ideologies, you have this 
atheistic, evolutionary way of viewing the world. Name one positive contribution that atheism has made as far as humanity is concerned. You won't find one. You'll find death and destruction in the wake of atheism, but you won't find anything that's been of any lasting benefit to humanity. Skip Heitzig, I love this. He says, when I look at this universe, it's clear to me that it reflects incredible design. And yet many people say that it just happened, that it's merely a fortuitous occurrence of accidental circumstance. But when you consider what's observable, it just so happens that the earth orbits 93 million miles from the sun. Just so happens that the sun has a surface temperature of 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. I don't know who measured that. I don't know who went there and took the temperature of the sun, but that's what they say. But the fact is, if we were closer, we'd burn up. If we were further away, we'd freeze to death. It just so happens that the earth is tilted on its axis, 23 and one-third degrees, so that we enjoy a beautiful balance of four seasons. It just so happens that if the earth were tilted a little bit differently, masses of vapors would travel north and south, creating huge continents of ice. It just so happens that we have the optimal mix in our atmosphere of carbon dioxide and oxygen. And if the mix were just a bit thinner, the asteroids and meteors that now disintegrate in our atmosphere would instead plummet all the way to our planet's surface. It just so happens that the moon is precisely the right size and exactly the right distance from the earth to create the tides necessary to sustain ocean life. If the moon were any bigger or closer, those same tides would inundate the land. And ladies and gentlemen, you think about the galaxies and you think about space and all of the vastness of it. And someone says, show me, prove to me the evidence of the creator the message of the Bible is look up, look around, open your eyes. So someone says, why do people say there is no creator? Why would they reject the truth of Revelation 10 and the message of this mighty angel? Well, some people say there's no evidence. Why do they say there's no evidence? I think that you go a little bit deeper, you probe a little bit deeper. If you allow for the existence of the creator, and if that creator exists, that means that he created you. And if he created you, that means you're accountable to him. And therein is the rub. You're not God. You're not your own sovereign. You don't get to be your own little Lord. You don't get to be the boss of your life. And then you add to the fact that sin and the enemy has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. You want to know what your role is? I'll tell you what your role is. Your role is declaring what you know to be true to a world that doesn't want to hear it. But you know that God is at work in this world and there will be those who will hear it, those in whom God is already working to open their eyes, convict their heart, and you share the message and you point people to the hope of the gospel and you watch God transform the lives of people. That's why he's got his church in the world. 
So what an awesome, awesome, the, the, the world looks around and man often looks around and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. But a believer looks around and says, I think to myself, what an awesome God who's made all of this. So confirming the word, and then notice this affirmation also involves a completion of the work. Completing the work. What is that work? Well, look at what the angel, he swears by him who lives forever, the creator, verse 6. There's no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God will be fulfilled. Just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. And so the work has to do with what? the ultimate plan that God has in mind for humanity, what that plan really is and what it means. John Walford says it this way, this mystery that's being referred to here had been previously announced to God's prophets. And so the reference, therefore, it's not to hidden truth, but to the fulfillment of many Old Testament passages. Here it is which refer to the glorious return of the Son of God and the establishment of his kingdom of righteousness and peace on the earth. What did the prophets of Israel look forward to? Well, they wrote about it. Think about what Isaiah writes about in Isaiah chapter 11 or what Ezekiel writes about in Ezekiel chapters 36 and 37 where they describe this perfect environment on earth, a kingdom in which righteousness dwells a world that is, has been fully, completely redeemed, restored. Sin has been banished. Death is no more. The wolf lies down with the lamb. Children play by the hole of a cobra. What is that pointing to? It's pointing to this perfect reality that's going to be established when Jesus returns. It's the kingdom of Messiah. This is the mystery that's being referred to here. This was the message of Israel's prophets. So it means the message of the prophets, the longing of God's people, it will finally come to be realized with the sounding of the seventh trumpet, which will result in the ushering in of the kingdom of God at the coming of Christ. And you think about it, every generation of believers has lived with this sense of anticipation and expectation that Jesus is coming. I think about the early church. You know, the early church firmly believed that Jesus would come back in their lifetime. You read what Paul writes in so many of his letters in the, Old, uh, the New Testament. It's clear that the Apostle Paul expected Jesus to return in his lifetime. But the mystery is, why the delay? Why is evil persisting? Why has the kingdom not been realized in terms of its power and actuality with the king literally physically seated upon the throne, ruling and reigning from the throne of David from Jerusalem? That's what the Old Testament prophets said was going to happen. But why the delay? You know what the delay is all about? Listen to me. The strategic patience of God. And the fact that people are coming to know Jesus. Every nation, every tribe, every language, every tongue, every people group, the beautiful body of Christ is being built up 
And this is a time of God's strategic patience, a time in which grace abounds to the chief of sinners. And people can be saved. But there's coming a time when that window of opportunity will come to a close. And there's no more delay. And the trumpets begin to sound. One final thing that I want you to notice from this text is the appropriation of this message. Now, this is a bittersweet book. This little scroll in the hand of this mighty angel. (laughs) But John is given a particular assignment here. The voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, he says in verse 8, saying, go and take the scroll that's open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and the land. So what does John do? He obeys. He went to the angel and told him to give him the scroll, and then the angel says to John, take and eat it. Now watch this. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. So this is a very strange command, isn't it? Now this is not without precedent, as strange as it is, the prophet Ezekiel was told to do something very similar in Ezekiel chapter 2, where he was told to take a scroll and consume it, eat it, internalize it. So consuming this scroll was a symbol, a picture of internalizing the message of the book or of appropriating entirely the message to one's life. As in Ezekiel's case, whenever he's told to open his mouth after consuming the book, it would be the Lord's words that would come out. So in the same way, John's told to consume this little scroll. He's told to consume this bittersweet book. It'll be sweet to the taste, but have a bitter effect in his stomach. Warren Wearsby says that the directions the angel gave to John should remind us of our ultimate responsibility to assimilate the Word of God and make it part of the inner man. It's not enough for John to just see the book. It's not enough for John to just read the book. It's not enough for John to just be familiar with the contents of the book. What is the message? Take it and eat it. Internalize it. Consume it so much so that it becomes a part of you. The prophet Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 15, 16, your words were found and I ate them. Your word was to me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Jesus said that we needed the word of God more than we needed our physical food. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Peter compared scripture to milk and said that like newborn babies were to long for the sincere milk of the word, were to crave the milk of the word like infants. So this is a passage that reminds me that I'm not only to read the word, I am to feed upon the word. I've got to internalize it. I've got to meditate it. I've got to allow it to do its powerful work deep within my heart and within my life. Now listen, you know as well as I do, a person is what a person eats. I was thinking about this this afternoon when I was eating that fried chicken. 
The food you eat is what you physically become. That is, it becomes part of our flesh and bone substance. It's what metabolism's all about. Or it means food is affected by chemical processes in our body so that it's broken down, absorbed, used for energy. That's what John is experiencing here in a spiritual sense. He's taking the word of God in internally. He's becoming personally involved in it. He's changed by it. He's obedient to it so that it becomes part of his own makeup. That's bittersweet. Tastes good to the palate. It's sweet to the taste buds, but it makes the stomach sour. And someone says, well, what's that all about? Well, the fact that there's an element of sweetness in the plan of God when John first bites into it. You think about the return of Jesus. You think about the future hope that's ours. Think about glory that's yet future. And isn't that sweet to the believer? It's sweet to the palate. But when you think about what the world is going to go through as far as judgment is concerned, until that day, it begins to resonate and the bitter reality sets in. It's painful. By the way, God's word cuts both ways. It pierces deep. It's a healing cut. It's the cut of a scalpel. It's not the rusty cut of a, of a rusty knife, but it's the surgical cut of a scalpel so that the cancer of my soul can be extracted It's a healing cut. It's bittersweet. And this involves, finally, this special commission. Why does John need to internalize the message? Well, look at the very last verse there. You must again prophesy. You've got to say something. You've got to speak. You've got to preach about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So there's a special commission here. And the idea is the gospel that is internalized personally will result in the gospel that is externalized publicly. Evidence that the word of of God, that the gospel has gotten inside of you, I mean really deep down, and you've internalized it will be you can't keep it to yourself. (laughs) You gotta share it. And you want to know what your role is to play? Coming back to that question, there it is. It's this mission that John's given, man. Proclaim, share, speak, internalize the word. Let it do its work in you, but share the word. There's a guy by the name of Menelik II. Menelik II, who was the emperor of Ethiopia from 1889 until his death in 1913. And historians say that he was responsible for having brought his struggling nation into the 20th century with railways and the telegraph system that uh, really just changed the dynamic of Ethiopia. But he did have one superstitious idea. He believed that whenever he got sick, all he needed to do to feel better was to eat a page or two from the Bible. (laughs) King Menelik practiced this self-medication for years, and obviously it didn't do him any harm, but during the last few years of his life, he suffered a series of strokes that left him partially paralyzed 
And after one major stroke in 1913, he was feeling terrible. He was feeling very feeble. And so he asked his aides to tear the entire book of 1 Kings from the Bible and to feed it to him page by page. And it was reported that he died about the time that he was consuming the story of King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. (laughs) Now listen, eating pages out of your Bible, this is not what God has in mind. This is not what I'm talking about when I say, eat this bittersweet book. But there is a sense in which we need to feed upon the Word of God daily. So that the Word is in us that it might be communicated and shared through us. And that's the role that you've been given and I've been given as we wait for the trumpets to sound. Let's stand for prayer tonight, can we? Let's dismiss in prayer. Lord, we're so thankful for the powerful word of God, Lord, that changes us Lord, to know that even though there is evil in the world and there is real injustice in the world, you've not turned a blind eye to it, but that we're living in a time of your strategic patience, a time of delay, but it's so that humanity can have ample time and opportunity to repent and believe the gospel and so that we as your people, Lord, can get serious with this commission, the great commission of taking the gospel which we've internalized that's changed us. And God, may we share it with our neighbors and ultimately the nations. Lord, whatever it is that we deal with in life, whatever problem, we may not have all the answers, but Lord, you've given us all that we need for life and godliness in your word and in the presence of your abiding spirit who lives within. And it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.